If you've got your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, near the end of the Old Testament. Be about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Now, as you uh, take your Bibles and uh, turn to Zechariah, for the purpose of full disclosure, I uh, have to say that I um, stole my title for my message uh, from a children's book by R.C. Sproul, the priest uh, with dirty clothes. I did that for two reasons. Uh, The first reason was because uh, I think that uh, parents of young children, if you're looking for an easy way to talk about the sermon after the service, there's a copy of this book. Uh, in the the church library, which you can pick up, and it would be a great way to talk about the gift of of Jesus' righteousness. The second reason is a little more simple. I just have a pathological dislike of naming sermons, so it was easier to steal it from R.C. Sproul. All right, let's read this uh, great uh, chapter from Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. O Father in heaven, God of of this word, who has a gospel, who has a, a message of good news as good as ours? Lord, if these words weren't written in these pages, we could hardly believe them. But Lord, as we think of the good news of how you deal with our sin, ask that you would help us, help me as the preacher uh, to speak these words in a way that will be understandable and, and helpful. Help us, Lord, as listeners of the word to not only hear these words, but take these words to our heart and to delight in them and to have them move us to a motivated service for your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
So our passage uh, this morning takes place during the uh, ministry of the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah was called to be a prophet uh, during days of, of unfulfilled, unmet expectations. Uh, these were uh, bleak years that Zechariah was ministering in. Uh, they certainly weren't the golden age uh, of Israel as things were under Kings David and Solomon four centuries earlier. Since that time, the people of God had experienced uh, um, just a continual moral and spiritual uh, decline, resulting in God driving his people out into exile in judgment for their sin. And he sends them off into Babylon. And one thing sustained God's people during those days in exile. It was that God had promised not to abandon his people, uh, but he promised that he would, in fact, one day at the appointed time, gather them back and bring them home. And as promised, God did, did deliver his people, as he had said he would. In 538 BC, under the reign of King Cyrus, uh, the first exiles were allowed to return to the promised land. And it is so that they might rebuild the temple of the Lord, which lay in ruins. This was the place where, that symbolized God dwelling with his people on earth. And the Jews came back, and they came back with great zeal and great enthusiasm uh, for this work of God, the God who had so graciously redeemed them. But the enthusiasm for the project quickly waned when opposition arose. Resistance uh, slowed the work on the temple, and so the temple site sat idle for another 20 years. And this is when Zechariah and his uh, contemporary Haggai appear on the scene. Uh, conditions in Judah were poor socially, economically, uh, spiritually. There was, uh, there was little uh, motivation to restart work on the temple at this point. It seemed, at least to the people, that God had in fact removed himself from the land. In fact, when Zechariah begins his preaching ministry, he tells the people quite plainly that God was angry at them for their sin, particularly their sin of sinfully neglecting the rebuilding of the temple. Perhaps some thought that God had given up on his sinful people. So what was, the, what was the point? Where was the motivation to build a house for God when the people weren't even sure what God's intentions were, if he would in fact wish to dwell in it? It's to people asking these sorts of questions that uh, this vision through the prophet Zechariah comes. But in this vision we see that the Lord, uh, he, he's wanting to reassure his people the Lord says through this vision that he removes the sin of his people and he clothes them uh, for acceptable service to him and therefore, having been made wholly acceptable to God, the people should give themselves wholly for God. They should take up the work again knowing that they have been accepted in the sight of the Lord. So to see how the Lord responds to his people in this condition, we're going to look at four features of this vision. We're going to look at the filthy priest, the pure priest, the faithful priest, and the promised priest. The filthy priest, the pure priest, the faithful priest, and the promised priest. So the vision which the prophet Zechariah receives from the Lord, it's his fourth, is set like a courtroom scene with three major characters on stage. And the character that first catches Zechariah's eye is Joshua the high priest. Now, boys and girls, just want to be sure to note that this is not the Joshua that you've probably learned about in Sunday school, the Joshua who is a, a soldier who leads the people into the promised land. This Joshua was a high priest. And as high priest, Joshua was the spiritual leader of the people of God. 
In Israel, the high priest was, was designated to be the special representative of the people before God. And while there was other priests who would help with, with other priestly work, like uh, the offering of sacrifices uh, and, and other work around the temple, it was only the high priest who was permitted uh, once a year to enter the temple's most holy place. And when he did this, it was under very careful, very strict instructions. And whenever the high priest passed through the veil of the most holy place, though he went alone, he went representing the people of Israel. It was his duty to deal with God on behalf of the people for the people's sins, to make atonement for the people's sins. And since the high priest was the one who would deal most directly with God in Israel, it was imperative that he be a holy man that he'd be a man uh, um, consumed with or, or very uh, intentional about uh, remaining ceremonially clean. We see in the earlier parts of the Bible uh, instructions along these lines. The priest had to be very careful about what he ate, uh, about what he touched, uh, about who he married. He was, this was a man who was expected once a year to come into the presence of the holy God, and so he had to be a holy man. It was a necessary part of the job description. And this is Joshua. He's the people of Judah's spiritual leader. He's their representative, and he is standing in this moment, in a manner of speaking, in the defendant's dock. And across from him, in the judge's seat, is the angel of the Lord. Now, the, the description, the angel of the Lord, is used in different ways in Scripture, uh, but the most basic idea here is that the angel of the Lord is one who speaks the word of God. In Zechariah, the angel of the Lord is so closely associated with the Lord that when uh, he speaks, Zechariah simply says, the Lord said. The point is that Joshua the high priest is standing in a holy space before one who has divine authority to pronounce judgment. And then Zechariah's eyes turn to a third major character, the adversary Adversary is what the word Satan uh, uh, means. Satan is, is just the, the Hebrew transliteration of, of the word adversary. He's the adversarial one, and he takes his place in the vision at the right hand of Joshua as the prosecuting attorney. His purpose is that he might bring an accusation or accusations against Joshua and bring con condemnation upon him. This is one of the chief activities of Satan, after all. If you look at Revelation 12, 10, it talks about how Satan is an accuser of the people of God. And so you can imagine at this point that Satan is ready to make his case. He's prepared it with great care. He's not a disinterested party in this whole thing, but he has prepared his case with great vigor and great vehemence, and he is ready to prosecute. And frankly, the evidence is very much in Satan's favor. This should not be a hard case for Satan to prosecute. Because if Zechariah were to quickly scan back to Joshua with just a quick look, he could see that Joshua's clothes are covered in filth. Now, the ESV translation uh, that I'm uh, using chooses to say that Joshua's clothes uh, were filthy. Uh, but this is, in fact, to put the matter a little too delicately. Joshua's condition is one that uh, many parents with uh, children in diapers know all too well, because the word for filth here is actually the word used to speak of human excrement. Even with our own children, as cute as they may be, we find it a gross and unseemly thing when we've got to clean up 
uh, clothing that for one reason or another is filthy. But here's the priest. Here's the spiritual leader of the people of God, uh, the one who is supposed to maintain ceremonial cleanliness, and he's standing before the angel of the Lord smeared in filth. It's a disturbing picture. The priest there covered, as it were, in human excrement. It would have shocked Zacharias being totally out of place, totally inappropriate. It would be like your defense attorney showing up to represent you hopelessly drunk. Right? This man is supposed to represent the people, and he's entirely unfit to do so. The filth, however, which besmirches Joshua's robes, as the angel helps him to see in verse 4, is symbolic of a deeper problem. It's symbolic of Joshua's sin, of his iniquity. This is a vision that's more than about just soiled clothing. This is a vision about a soiled life. In this vision, Joshua, the man who is supposed to be emblematic of holiness in Israel, stands before the Lord and the offensive sight and stench of his sin is made plain. As one commentator summarizes, Joshua stands before the angel of the Lord turned inside out with what he is really on full display, covered with shame and condemned in the court of heaven. So Zechariah were to turn his attention back to Satan, one could imagine that Satan is, is just brimming with confidence at this point, uh, brimming with the prospect of winning a guilty verdict against the high priest, no less. Right? This is a shoe-in. This should be an easy thing. Satan knows quite well the uncompromising holiness of God, and so surely this wouldn't be hard. This could be a point of agreement. The condemning evidence was quite plain. Here's the thing, Satan had a case. He didn't need to lie. He didn't need to make stuff up. The Lord never corrects Satan for lying. In fact, the angel of the Lord acknowledges uh, that Joshua uh, is filthy, that he is covered in iniquity. So Satan, as a prosecutor, all he had to do was highlight the evidence that was right there in plain sight. Now put yourself in Joshua's sandals for a moment. What an uncomfortable place this would be. Because by nature, we are practiced sin hiders. Of course, we don't always do it successfully. The, the anger that we wish to uh, suppress or keep out of sight erupts at our kids in the grocery store, or we get caught by someone in a lie, or someone catches us in a moment of self-abashed, uh, unabashed self-interest or vanity. But we have a well-rehearsed tendency to do what we can to hide the depth of our sin. We employ entire law firms in our head who are prepared to jump to our defense, refusing any hint of wrongdoing on our part. We're quick to rationalize and explain away sin. We use smoke screens and distractions and diversions and half-truths. We gravitate toward people who will affirm us as we are and never think to point out our sin We don't want to face the truth about ourselves. And frankly, we certainly don't want others to be faced with the truth about ourselves. We don't want that truth exposed. Often, if our conscience is not seared, we're ashamed at the thought that we would be seen for all that we are and all that we woefully are not. So it's for this reason that this vision of Zachariah might cause us to squirm 
Because in this vision, Joshua is seen for who he really is. Joshua's iniquity was indisputably laid bare before him. He was exposed before the heavenly judge. And even more disturbing is the fact that this is the man who is supposed to be, as I said, the holiest person in the church, the standard of holiness. And when the Lord sees him, when the Lord sees Joshua, the high priest, for who he is, and it's apparent that he is filthy before the Lord, the people of of Judah would have been left to cry out, who then, Lord? If not Joshua, who then? If the high priest stands before you in the filth of his sin, who will be acceptable in your sight? So if, as Joshua stands before the Lord, he is covered in the filth of his iniquity, and there is no hiding, should we expect that when we stand before the holy judge, as we will, that we would avoid such exposure? Well, here it's Satan's time to strike. Uh, His ears are tingling in fiendish anticipation of the condemning verdict, but before he opens his mouth, the angel of the Lord cries out, The Lord rebuke you, Satan! The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you! Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? See, the angel of the Lord throws out the case before the accuser can even open his mouth. He will not permit charges to be brought. So it wasn't because of anything that Joshua had done in terms of his defense or anything he had said. No, the Lord dismisses the charges, he says, because Joshua is like a stick that God himself has plucked from the fires of exile in Babylon. On the basis of his electing love, the Lord will not allow any charges to be brought against his elect. Now, the accuser is silenced here. Satan uh, uh, slinks back into the background, but it remains for the Lord to deal with the sin of Joshua because he remains in these soiled garments. Though the Lord won't permit any charges to be brought against Joshua, he still remains unfit to be in the presence of the Lord. He's unclean. He's unholy. But the Lord in his tender mercy will deal with Joshua's sin. It's the Lord. It's not Joshua who dismisses the verdict, and now it's the Lord who does two incredible things to address the problem of the spiritual filth that clings to Joshua. First, the angel of the Lord commands that Joshua's dirty garments be removed. The sin which polluted the high priest and truly made him unacceptable to God will be taken off. Now, the necessity of sin's removal is shown for us elsewhere in the Old Testament, particularly on the Day of Atonement. There on the day when the high priest was to come into the presence of the Lord on behalf of the people to deal with their sin, they had a ceremony where a goat was provided and the sin of the people was laid on the goat and the goat was driven out into the wilderness, symbolizing sin's removal from the priest and from the camp and from the people. See, it was imperative, according to this understanding, that uh, sin be removed to allow for a relationship between God and his people. And this is what the angel of the Lord commands to be done, that the guilt of Joshua is taken away. Now, if this was where the vision terminated, we would be left with a rather awkward picture of a very naked priest. The filth of his sin would be removed and nothing more. He would be left shivering. But the people of Judah needed more. We need more. Remember, they were in a bleak, Times and wondering whether God had given up on them, whether he had abandoned them. 
And certainly when, when Zechariah points out the sin of the people, and, and as it's seen so vividly in this depiction of Joshua, this couldn't have provided much comfort for the people that God would accept them or that he wanted to be with them. Why should they uh, uh, believe that God would want to accept or bless or favorably receive the efforts of this people to rebuild the temple or to do anything else? See, it would be possible for God to remove sin but not receive the sinner. Just consider the example of someone who's stolen a great deal of money from his employer. He's accrued a great debt now to his employer because of his, his theft, but the employer could choose to forgive that debt. But this doesn't mean that the thieving employee should expect to come into work on Monday. Right? Just because he's forgiven, that's not the same thing as acceptance. And that's why it's for the people's great comfort, it's for our great comfort that the Lord does more than just remove Joshua's sin. He gives to Joshua pure vestments or pure garments. And upon the, the insistence of Zechariah who chimes in, the Lord gives to Joshua a clean turban, which was the, the headgear, the headdress of the Jewish high priest. You see, while the filthy garments symbolized Joshua's impurity because of sin, these new clothes represented a righteousness that came from outside of Joshua that was received as a gift. The Lord dresses Joshua in these clean robes and he places the clean turban on his head so that Joshua might be clothed as one who can, uh, is fit to minister in the presence of God. By the gift of these pure robes, God is saying to Joshua and through Joshua's role as representative of the people, he's saying to the people that he has made a way for sinners to be positively acceptable, positively righteous in his presence. Now this is something that we'll see momentarily, but it's something which God has promised to all who would believe and embrace Jesus Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. That he not only removes our sin, but he gives to us a righteousness not our own. This is a promise made to us here today. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would just invite you to consider the claims of Jesus, to listen carefully to this whole message and wonder. Look at, at, look at this, this passage. Here is the promise of one who can deal with your guilt and shame, who can deal with the, the, the fear that we have of being exposed, who can clothe us and cover our nakedness. But my concern also is... Uh, for some of us who have grown up in the church, some of us who have missed out on the opportunity, the, the comfort that God wishes his people to have because we've only seen half of Zachariah's vision, so to speak. Unwittingly, we've held to a shrunk gospel. If I were to ask uh, some of you right now, what's the gospel? What's the good news? I think uh, a number of you would probably answer, and not incorrectly, that Jesus died to forgive my sins. Right? And that's true. That's gloriously true. We absolutely need that first part of Zechariah's that our sin would be removed from us and forgiven. But we need to say more. We get to say more. There's not a few Christians who believe that God, by divine choice, has removed the guilt and filth of their sin, but that's all they know to say. And so like the people of, of Judah in, in Zechariah's time, they're left to wonder, God forgave me, but does he accept me, approve me, want me? Will he be with me? And, and if this is, is you, and if, if you've thought like this, you might be wanting to say, yes, 
right? But you can't say it with any sort of conviction. Why, why should God accept you? Well, I, mean, I, I think he will. Uh, there's just this sort of vague trust that if God forgave me, well, perhaps, kind of, sort of, maybe, uh, he will accept me. Or worse, we fall back on attempts to gain acceptance by God through our own efforts. Right? There's a, a tentativeness in our voice. Uh, you know, I, I think he'll accept me because, you know, I, I tried to live for him. I did my best. I, I, I made some improvements. You see, in this way of thinking, we're forgiven by grace, but we're accepted by our works. And when I hear this from people, I just want to shake them in a gentle, loving way. Uh, shake them and, and say, no, no, you know, please, please don't lean on that. Right? There, there's no security in this. There, there's no comfort in this. There is more. Right? Surely Joshua was trying his best to live a life pleasing to God as the high priest. He had great incentive to do so. Right? And he knew what he was supposed to do. Right? But there is no peace in that. Relying on, just I think, I think I did my best. There's no solid ground to say, I know that the Lord will accept me. I know he'll receive me into his presence. See, God gave this vision to Joshua and to Judah and to us to say that God doesn't just remove our sin from us, but by his own initiative, he makes us positively righteous, positively acceptable in his sight. If I can put it this way, God doesn't just uh, make us so that we're no longer ugly. He makes it so that we are breathtakingly beautiful in his sight, clothed in the righteousness of heaven. In theological language, we would say that Joshua has been justified. He's been declared to be righteous in the sight of God. But when the Lord speaks uh, so that he declares Joshua to be righteous, symbolized in the giving of these robes, it's meant for Joshua to give himself wholly to God. I think verse 7 helps us to understand what we're supposed to do with this vision because the angel of the Lord tells Joshua what he's supposed to do in response to what's happened. He tells Joshua that because he's been forgiven, because he has been uh, made acceptable to God, he should give himself faithfully to carrying out the duties that God has given to him. Joshua is urged to, to walk in the Lord's ways and work as the Lord has instructed him. He's, he's uh, instructed to go about faithful service. So what's the connection between verses 1 to 5, uh, where Joshua is forgiven, clothed in righteousness, and, and verse 7 here? Well, here's what I think the, the connection is. Uh, when there's a great uncertainty in a relationship, great uncertainty as to whether a person uh, accepts you uh, or, or cares for you, uh, it tends to make serving them very difficult. Now, some of you know this from experience, whether it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a friend or a spouse, if you're never sure if they care about you at all, after a while, you seem to lose motivation to serve them because you wonder, what's the point? Right, they don't care about me. I'll never be able to please them. I'm not even sure that they're paying attention. If I do something nice, I don't even know that they'd notice. So what do you do? Oftentimes, what I've seen happen is you tend to give up, right? You, you quit trying, I'm not saying that's right, but I'm saying that that's what happens. And Judah is stuck like this. The temple reconstruction had stalled uh, because the people had stopped prioritizing the Lord. Uh, but now they wondered, where's the Lord in all this? Bleak times. Would he even care? Or had God just discarded them? 
And if God had, had discarded them, what was the point of pouring blood, sweat, and tears all that time into the temple? What was the point in, in going about priestly service when there's uncertainty about whether God even cared about his people anymore? Well, Zachariah's vision, however, was not intended to reassure the people, uh, or it was, rather, uh, intended to communicate to the people that God not only cared about them, but he had forgiven them and he had made them acceptable in his sight. Joshua was made pure and righteous so that he might be able to stand and minister in the presence of God. Joshua's acceptance as he's forgiven, made righteous, this is meant to propel him into faithful service as a priest to God. It's meant to strengthen his hand. It's meant to steal his resolve to faithfully obey God's instructions. What what a thing, to to know that you've been accepted, loved, that that motivates us, propels us into service. I I don't ever uh, question my wife's love for me. And so I know that she accepts me. And so it, it makes it easy for me to do things that I know are pleasing to her. I'm motivated because I know she's paying attention. I know that, that she accepts me. Right? That's, it's the same dynamic going on here. Having been accepted by God, Joshua should be able to give himself for God, to resume the work on the temple, to happily apply himself to ministering as a priest on the people's behalf. He's been assured, Joshua, God in his grace has accepted you. He's put your sin away and he will receive you. He takes now pleasure in your obedience. And some of us need to hear this this morning, to make this connection, to be reminded of the righteousness given to us in the gospel. Because if you belong to Christ by faith and you've received this, you've received these righteous robes, and think of how this will change how we spend our life should motivate us, should propel us into service. It should push us out of our lackadaisical approach to the Christian life, out of our spiritual lethargy. We don't have to worry, you know, am I doing this work to, to win God's favor? Am I doing this work, will God even notice? But we have been forgiven and accepted. And so how we spend our time matters, right? We Uh, we get to serve in things like backyard Bible clubs and Sunday school and cadets and and girls of grace. This matters because uh, God can be pleased by our ministry on his behalf because he's already rendered us acceptable. What we do with our body matters because God for his people has rendered us or, or declared us to be acceptable in his sight. And so we can please him with how we use and steward our bodies, what we do with our resources. It all matters. Zachariah's vision concludes with Joshua being told by the angel of the Lord that he and his priestly colleagues would be a sign of things to come. Their acceptance pointed ahead to the time when their acceptance would be secured. My servant, the branch, which the Lord refers to, is a reference to the Messiah who had been promised by the prophets, prophets like the prophet Jeremiah, who foretold of one who from the line of David would come, a righteous branch, Jeremiah said, who would save his people from their sins. He was to be called the Lord is our righteousness. See, by this promised branch, Joshua was told, the Lord would remove the iniquity of his people once for all. What was symbolized in Joshua's filth being replaced with pure robes would be realized through this promised Messiah. Unlike Joshua, he would be a high priest who was a high priest who had no need to be stripped of his filthy robes for he was blameless and without sin. 
He had no need to receive the pure robes of heaven, for he was already completely in himself pure, accepted and delighted in by the Father. But he would come to do the work which Joshua himself, as the high priest of the people, needed to remove the sin of the people once for all. The promised branch of David's line, the one who would do the priestly work which Joshua himself required, was, of course, none other than Jesus. And as our great high priest, he would accomplish for God's chosen people the great exchange which Zechariah saw portrayed in this vision. But as one commentator helpfully draws out, he would do this in the most unexpected way so that our shame might be clothed by the pure robes of heaven. Jesus was stripped naked and exposed so that we might receive the priestly headdress as the one holy and acceptable to the Lord. Jesus had a crown of thorns forced upon his head as one stricken and afflicted by God so that we might have the true charges of the accuser dismissed. Jesus had the false charges of sinful men sustained so that we might have the filth of our sin removed. Jesus, who was without sin, became sin for us. For it's as the Apostle Paul wrote, for our sake, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, we, by this promised branch, this promised priest, the greatest thing possible is, is, is true for us. It has happened. Not only has our sin been removed by this promised branch, but you in him have been made positively righteous, positively acceptable in the sight of God. And so we have no need to hide, no need to protest, no need for smoke screens and diversions or excuses. We have no need for any of these things. We have no need to plod through the Christian life wondering if God will accept or receive our service, if he'll even care. Because if you're trusting in this branch, if you've received this branch, you've already been accepted by him, and so you can give your life wholly for him. Let's pray. O righteous God, that we, unrighteous, filthy sinners, should be able to approach you and dare to say that we, are, we have been made righteous is an incredible thing. If it were not written in these pages, Lord, we could not believe it. To think that you would take the, the filth of our sin, you would remove it, you would cast it off as far as the east is from the west, and that you would then take the righteous robes of the one who suffered, the promised branch, the promised priest, and you would give them to us so that we would be clothed in them, made acceptable to be received into your sight. Lord, this is an unthinkably great thing. Lord, I pray that we would trust in this, that we would delight in this, that we would mine great comfort from Jesus and his righteousness given to us in the gospel. And Lord, as we think about this, as we meditate on this, as we have this um, just infuse our, our life and our way of thinking. Might we be propelled into service, knowing that because we've been made acceptable in your sight, we can now serve you, and it matters. It pleases you. So help us to be a people who are just captivated by these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.